Uh, welcome to Regen. Uh, my name is Kyle, and I get to serve as the pastor here. So welcome tonight uh, to really a special night, and you'll see why at the end. Um, here's, here's what I want to say. Um, uh, our team chooses these songs to pastor us. Okay? Uh, and these songs, when, when, when they come about them, they're really coming at them to see what do we need to hear from God? And so when we have a song that I find us repeating on, uh, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God, I'm assuming that the Spirit senses that we need to know that. And, and the Spirit of God pastors us through what we sing. Uh, and our team does a really, really fantastic job of that. So thanks. Um, welcome to Regen. Our mission is simple. It's to interrupt people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And that means that we will have accomplished our mission tonight if something in your thinking shifts or something in your heart is challenged or you are comforted in the midst of something that you're walking through, that something clicks or pivots uh, in your heart, in your soul, in your life. That's how we know we've done our job. We're taking our mission as Regen to the next level this spring. Uh, come April, this community will be meeting in this place seven, six hours and 45 minutes earlier uh, at 11.15 in the mornings. Uh, and there's a variety of reasons for this, but the main one is that when we set out to reach people and connect people that are far from God to God, uh, the, more, the more work we've done in that, we've recognized that the reason all these churches meet on Sunday mornings is that it's the best time to do that. Um, and so we want to move into that to really maximize your ability to be inviting your friends. And I know you invite friends and they say, I'd love to come, but I, I have uh, my nephew's birthday party this week and my grandma's birthday party the week after that. And then we're going to the Browns game and then we're doing, why you would go to a Browns game, by the way, is beyond me. But, um, you know, anyway, uh, and so, yeah, listen, uh, the Steelers didn't go to the Super Bowl either, so it's all good. And, uh, but, uh, so we're going to be doing that. There's info on that in your program. We've been putting stuff online. We just really want you to be seeing this as an opportunity for you to be connecting your friends and your family to what's going on here at Regen. Uh, tonight we're in John's Gospel. We are in John chapter 2. Uh, and if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If not, uh, grab one of those blue paperback Bibles under you. Those red ones are okay. They're just not going to sound the same as what we're reading. And uh, one of the shifts that we're going to be making in this series is less and less of the text is going to show up on the screen um, so that we can have the Bible in front of us. So some of you also are digital Bible users. That's fabulous. Um, you might be slightly less Christian, but that's okay. Uh, just kidding. Uh, and so John chapter 2 is where we are tonight. We're going to be in the book of John for a while in kind of uh, multiple seasons. If you're newer to Regen, what you need to know is uh, we take the Netflix approach to the Bible. Uh, we, my wife and I just binge watched the, the show on Netflix, The OA. OA, just two letters, good show. Binge watched it. Uh, so we like to binge watch shows. What's that? It needs a disclaimer. Not entirely church appropriate. So, certain moments. Anyway, we're just being real. So, we're going to be in John 2 tonight, and uh, we'll go from there. But let's pray as we do this, can we? Father, we, uh, we confess and believe and wrap ourselves around a mystery, and it's this, that wherever the nature of the Lord is spoken of, there he is present. And so, we trust 
that what is done tonight is not some exercise in my vanity uh, or just words spoken that tickle the ears, but that, that, that what happens tonight is you making yourself present to us, your people, so that we would have hearts that are broken for what breaks yours, that we would see people the way that you see them, and that that would motivate us then to uh, point people to Jesus this week. And so, Father, where there is comfort to be given, give it. Where there is challenge to be offered, strike deep. Uh, where there is vision to see beyond ourselves, help us to catch a glimpse of that so that we might walk with you this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple years ago, my wife and I are driving here from Chicago. We lived in Chicago at the time. So we're driving, we're on the turnpike, and all of a sudden, bing, 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 we're out of gas, or running out of gas at the very least. And, you know, I don't know if you've really ever driven 80, but sometimes there's like a rest stop, and then it'll be like, next rest stop forever, right? Uh, as if to say, like, turn back now or else. And so we find ourselves in the middle. I don't know what we're going to do. The light is blinking. And I will tell you, there is nothing that can send you from zero to 60 than being out of gas. Do you know what I'm talking about? You are having a great day until all of a sudden you, that light goes on. And it's like you're thinking, if I don't stop right now, like this second, I am done. Or you do this whole math thing, right? Like, okay, I get like 30 miles to a gallon. I probably got like a half gallon, which would be this, and it's this part of this. And I don't really know how far things are, you know? And so it's one thing to be out of gas and know about it. It's another thing to run out of gas and miss that. My friend Jarell and I, when we were living in grad school, we went over to the next town over, Glen Ellen, studied, had some coffee, and we go to get in his car, and uh, it won't turn over. And even though his gas tank says it's half full, he realizes th there's no gas in the engine. And actually, I told this story this morning at the Grace Campus, and I've remembered actually better details. And so we call all of our friends, and they're all busy. And so Jarrell has to call this girl that he likes and say, hey, would you come and save us? So she does. Now, it only got worse in this way. A couple days later, he's actually like on a date with this girl. And my phone rings, and he says... Kyle, it's Darrell, I'm out of gas again. <laughs> so I had to go and buy another little can and fill up his car and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, and I don't know how related these things are, but it didn't really ever work out with that girl. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's one thing to be out of gas and know about it. It's another thing entirely to be out of gas and unaware. We know what it is to run out. We know what it is to be empty, but there's an even scarier feeling of being empty, of being out, and you don't know about it. And as we look to John 2 today, we're going to look not at one story, but at two that John places right next door to each other. And there's some commonality in them. And there's a commonality that wants to speak to our emptiness to our out-of-gasness. And so we're going to be in John 2, and I want to read the first half, and it, and it says this. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that is not our problem, Jesus replied. Hey, you can use that with your mom. It's scripture. Mom, that isn't my problem, Jesus said. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come, but his mother told the servants, just do whatever he tells you. 
standing. Isn't it nice to know that Jesus had mama problems? You know what I'm saying? It's just an encouragement. (laughs) Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing, and each could hold 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out, take it to the master of the ceremonies. And so the servants followed his instructions. And when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. And then when everybody is drunk, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, brothers, and his disciples. John 2 opens with Jesus and his disciples and his mother rolling into a wedding in Cana of Galilee, but there's a problem. The people that are throwing the wedding have run out of wine. Now, this would be a problem at your wedding, This is what keeps your mother or your mother-in-law up at night, that when we throw the wedding, what if there's not enough blank? But, But hear me on this, weddings at this time for Jewish people weren't just like a ceremony, some dancing, a meal, and we're out of here. It was a days long event. It was much more expensive. It was a days-long event. So you needed to make sure you didn't have wine for a few hours. You needed to make sure that you had wine that would last for days. And in a culture that is based entirely in shame, uh, they have now put themselves at great social risk. They're out of wine. So Jesus' mom, like all moms, kind of tries to push him into a scenario that Jesus doesn't necessarily feel he has a whole lot of responsibility for. He says, dear woman... Other translations just say woman, and it's not like, woman? Mm, No, Uh, it's more like, dear woman, my lovely mother, what what does this have to do with you and me? Literally in the Greek, it's like, what to you and what to me? Why? I don't have to do this. And yet somehow, again, it's so good to know that Jesus had mama problems. He ends up in the back of the house with the servants looking at these six stone water jars used for ceremonial washings. They hold between 20 and 30 gallons each. And, and, and he says, fill the jars with water. But what's crazy is he says it like it's NBD, right? No big deal. Uh, it's not like he can just stick the hose in the jar and turn it on. No, that means the servants are going to the well, dipping the water down in the well, bringing the bucket up, filling it. I mean, so in my mind, like hours later, right? Uh, like in SpongeBob. They have these things full, and Jesus says, dip some out and, and take it. But, but I, I, I want to say something that I wrote that I skipped, just truth be told. So Jesus, his mom, is trying to get him to do this thing. And I think this is how we treat Jesus. Jesus, here's this problem, go do it. Jesus is not your dancing monkey. <laughs> Jesus is not your dancing monkey. Jesus does not come into your life so that you can say jump and he says how high to every issue, problem, and challenge in your life. He has his own purpose, his own plan. And throughout the Gospel of John, you see Jesus bringing what seem like legitimate requests to him and Jesus saying no or doing it differently. It's because Jesus isn't your dancing monkey. We don't get Jesus in our life so he can sprinkle his Jesus magic and only give us good things. Jesus is not your performer. And you come to believe that Jesus is your performer when you ask him for something and he doesn't give it to you and you get bitter and you get angry. Jesus is not your dancing monkey. He is the king of the universe 
who deigns to take time to hear us, to love us, and to walk with us, and to wrap us into his own purpose, not the other way around. Jesus decides to take up this scenario and make a greater point out of it. So he ends up in the back of the house. They fill up the water jars. He says, dip some out. And they take it to the master of ceremonies who is floored by the quality of the wine. But notice, notice this, who knows what's going on? The servants. Nobody else knows. Nobody else knows that they didn't send the servants out to go get more wine. Nobody, nobody knows. And here's another theme that you'll constantly see in the Gospel of John. It's the people on the outside and the bottom that know more than those on the inside and the top. And so if you consider yourself on the outside, if you're a misfit, if nobody gets you, if you have opinions that nobody understands, if you felt rejected and left over your entire life, if your movie is The Breakfast Club, you are the servant in this. You're the one who knows what those on the inside ought not to know. And he takes them the wine. They drink the wine. It's the best wine they had. And it says, this is the first sign that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee and his disciples believed in him. John's gospel is arranged in seven signs and three Passovers. Seven signs, and this is the first one. And in turning water to wine, which by the way, Dallas Willard in his book, uh, The Divine Conspiracy says, this again is not that Jesus just throws some, like throws magic Harry Potter stuff at it and it turns into wine. It's that Jesus is smart. And Jesus knows how to rearrange molecules in order to make water into wine. And his disciples believe in him. We find a wedding that is empty. We find a wedding that is run out. And the text moves on. It says he goes down to Capernaum with his brothers and his mom, and then fast forwards a little bit in verse 13, where the text says, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. And in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle and sheep and doves for sacrifices, and he also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. And he drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers, coins all over the floor and turned over their tables and going over to the people who sold doves. He said, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, hey, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Mic drop. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? John editorializes. He says, but when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus has said. Jesus moves from a wedding where they've run out, an empty wedding, to a temple that is overflowing with activity. A temple that is bustling as Jews flock to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he gets to the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and finds it turned into a marketplace. It was not uncommon for Jews at the Passover to have to travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles, to, to, to get to 
Jerusalem. And I know, I, I think we all can share the experience that traveling with goats is very difficult. Um, even Southwest, you know, how many carry-ons does that count? I don't know. Uh, hard to get them under the seat. And so it was not uncommon that you would just get to Jerusalem, buy your sacrifice, and take it in. But here we find a Jesus in the category of Jesus behaving badly. This is not polite, Jesus. You're making a mess, Jesus. Use your inside voice, please, Jesus. And yet he flips tables and makes a whip and scatters them. Why? Why is Jesus mad? When I was at Moody, um, I, I wrote in our public relations department, and so we would get letters from people about the Bible, and we'd write back. And I got a letter that was just dripping with anger and bitterness. Like the kind of letter that you get, you're like, I don't want to touch that. I don't want that evil on me. You know, I don't want... And, and the letter was about a guy whose church was putting a bookstore in, in their facility so they could find good resources, have them available for people and this kind of thing. And he said, listen, Jesus said this, my father's house should be a house of prayer, not a marketplace. So I don't think we should have this bookstore. It's a cute idea, but he's wrong. And here's why. Jesus isn't mad about what they're selling. He's mad about where they're selling it. They're selling it in this outside court of the Gentiles. There's two parts of the temple, two words that Jesus uses in Greek here. The temple proper was the place that Jews and Jews only would go in once a year to make their sacrifice. They'd buy their goat, again, hard to travel with, or their lamb or their doves. They'd go in, they'd make the sacrifice. Their sin would be atoned for for the year. Only Jews were allowed in this. But when they constructed the temple, the heart of God has always been that while he would have a special chosen people, he loved all nations. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great people that all the nations of the earth could be blessed. And so we created a court of the Gentiles. Gentiles literally means ethnos or nations. Here's this court of the Gentiles. And this is the place where God-fearers, this is kind of like the term that we used, we would call them like seekers today. They could come into the court of the Gentiles to seek after the Lord. It was the one place for outsiders to experience God. And the Jews, the insiders, had taken this thing for outsiders and now made it about them. They had made the outsider thing for insiders. They'd made it about their convenience. Hear me on this. Nothing makes Jesus angrier. Nothing makes Jesus angrier than when we erect barriers to keep those far from God even further away. Let me say it differently. Nothing makes Jesus angrier than when religious people try to keep the outsiders on the outside. Nothing makes Jesus angrier than when insiders try to keep the outsiders out there. Because we don't want that in here. We don't want the questions and the mess and the da-da-da-da-da. And so now Jesus walks into a temple that is full of activity, but that could not be more empty. Because the Jewish religion had become dry and dusty and stale and rote. It had become religion. It had become about outward acts of righteousness with hearts that were far from the Lord. Jesus looks at the Jews of his day and he says to them, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. He says, you do these outward things right, but inside you're dead. 
And Jesus wants to come and open a new and living way. He wants to fill the emptiness of religion, the emptiness of this temple with something different. And so he walks in, he clears the place out, and he says to them, in three days, I can destroy this temple and give you a new one. And they look at the structure of the building and they say, how do you build this in three days? It took us 46 years, but they're missing the point that this structure that he is in is no longer the center of their worshiping life. That in his flesh, in himself, the glory of God would be revealed. And so John 1.14, the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then we saw his glory. We didn't need a temple through which to see his glory. We just saw in the face of Jesus, we encountered God. And so, of course, in three days, I can build up this new temple because I will die and I will rise again and I will open, Hebrews says, a new and living way through the curtain that you may enter in with confidence an empty wedding, and an empty temple. That's what these, this text has in common. Emptiness. Sure, there's that commonality of a priority for the outsider, the, the low, the, out, the, the excluded, the servants know all about what's happening with the wine, and now Jesus is trying to take the worship of the temple and make sure that it includes people like the servants. That's a commonality, but at an even deeper level, John puts these two stories next to each other because he wants us to know that Jesus fills the empty things. That Jesus fills the empty things. He shows up at a wedding that is run out of wine, and he finds six stone water jars, just one shy of that perfect number seven. And he fills them with a new kind of wine and a new kind of joy. He fills the empty things. And then he finds himself at the temple, which couldn't be on the outside, more busy and active and movement. And yet, behind the scenes, it is empty. And so he says, I will fill this empty thing with myself. And this is good news for us in two general ways. And the first way it is good news is this, is that Jesus wants to fill empty religion with himself. Those of us who are raised in youth group and in church, we heard this thing growing up. It's not a religion, it's a what? Relationship. Ah, isn't that cute? It's, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. But I, can I tell you, nothing could be more true. Jesus isn't inviting you to something where you show up and do, you do outward nice things. I mean, you can participate, even at a place like Regen in that way. You can come, you can give to the one thing, you can stand up while we're singing, you can hear Kyle talk, you, you can hang out with these people, you can honor him with your lips, you can honor him with your time, and yet your heart could be far from him. Now, this is terrifying news to the person who prides themselves on religion who prides themselves on what they have given and what they have done and what they have given up and the hard decisions they have made and the committees they've sat on and the things that they have accomplished for the Lord, but it is bad news for them because it doesn't matter to Jesus if your heart isn't close by. Jesus isn't coming to give us more religion, more things we ought to do, more shoulds. He is coming to offer us himself to fill our attempts at understanding and getting to God, that's what religion is, with a life-giving, vibrant, depthy relationship. If you were in my guy's Bible study this week, we used this line, God, isn't, God doesn't want to be studied, he wants to be known. 
Religion says, study God, master him, understand the principles on a one-page document. And you find that God takes that, and this book does this over and over again, takes our neat little outlines and tears them to shreds so that we would know him. He fills the empty things with himself. He fills the empty things with himself. But let me tell you why else this is good news. Some of you are out of wine. Some of you are out of wine. You are walking around and there is, you are scraping the bottom of that jar because there is no wine left. A single mom is just trying to keep it together, just trying to make ends meet, trying to be everything she needs to be for her kids, trying to make it work, but she's out of wine. I can't keep doing it. Marriages run out of wine. What was once joyful and life-giving and engaging and vibrant has become basically playing battleship over who does actually have to empty the dishwasher, who has to take out the garbage, and, and, and it's become cold and dry. Marriages run out of wine. Sometimes when we're walking through singleness, we run out of wine because we just get really tired of waiting for that Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. And if we've been raised in the church, man, we know that there's supposed to be this standard and he's supposed to be good or she's supposed to be good. And so we just get tired of waiting. Or in our grief, after a loss, we're just tired of that empty space in our house. We're out of wine. Sometimes when we're parenting, we run out of wine because you just have to keep having this conversation over and 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 over again. And just when you think you've made a tiny bit of progress, we're back to square one and we're out of wine. Sometimes we walk through anxiety and depression and it just keeps getting heavier and heavier and heavier and the light does not turn on, it does not get brighter and we're running out of wine. We, we had dreams of a, of a vocation and a job and a life and work that was fulfilling, maybe not financially, but at least that we could go home at the end of the day and say, I had meaningful work. I did something meaningful today. And yet we keep driving to the office and driving home and it feels more dull and more rote. And this thing that was supposed to be life-giving and that I went into crazy amounts of student debt for as far from what I thought it would be, I'm, I'm running out of wine. Sometimes when you've been serving and leading, you're running out of wine. Think about all of our folks at Regen that come early and stay late. I mean, we keep moving stuff and putting them out and putting them back and putting it out and putting it back and picking the songs and, and, and we're running out of wine because it's hard to keep making the right decision. It's hard to stick with the vision. It's hard to keep the passion alive. We're running out of wine. Sometimes when you walk with Jesus, you run out of wine. Jesus, I'm showing up. I'm reading the Bible. I'm praying. I'm pursuing you. I'm singing the songs. It's just not clicking. Feels like there's nobody on the other end of the phone. I'm running out of wine. Hear me on this. Jesus fills the empty things. Jesus fills the empty things. And so for the single mom who just keeps showing up and trying and doing it, she finds that maybe just tonight she gets a good night's sleep. 
And for the marriage that's been running out of wine, suddenly a song comes on the radio, or he looks at you just with that glance like he used to, or she just happens to say something in a certain way, and you remember maybe there really is something deeper to this that is really life-giving that I want to stick with. And sometimes uh, in parenting, we, we find that they actually heard us. suddenly the person who's walking through singleness just finds another reason to wait. If only because an ex-boyfriend does something crazy on Facebook. Someone walking through grief finds that Jesus fills up the hole of that person in their life again. Sometimes when we're running out of wine in our vocation and in our work, which seems dull and lifeless and boring, we have a conversation with a coworker that somehow shifts their soul and we're reminded that maybe we're here for a reason more than just making widgets or selling stuff. And the anxiety and the depression does not go away. Find me a preacher who tells you Jesus makes depression go away and I will introduce them to 70 of my friends. But it becomes fractionally lighter somewhat more bearable. You keep showing up to lead and make decisions and Jesus fills the empty thing because a new person walks in the room or somebody says, thank you. (laughs) And you're reminded why it's worth doing it. Sometimes you show up, you keep showing up to read the scripture, to pray, to engage with Jesus and suddenly just one word or one line of a song just gets to you again. Jesus fills empty things. Jesus fills empty things. Jesus fills empty things. There's this flashback to 1540. 1540, Venice, Italy. Venice is becoming kind of the center of trade around the Mediterranean Sea. It's booming and growing. And uh, the monks of St. Benedict their coffers are growing as sailors and merchants come in and they, they give money. And so they say, let's take this little island. Let's build a chapel so that the sailors and the merchants of the people, they can come in, they can have a, find a place to rest. They can find a place to meet with God. They can come and encounter him. And so uh, they, they, they build, they build their, their chapel. They build their structure. And there's this big space on the dining room wall. And they say, hey, you know, what would work there would be a great painting. And so they say, Uh, let's hire one of these famous Renaissance guys to come and paint it. And so they come and he comes and he says, well, what would you like the subject to be? What shall I paint? And they say, oh, you have way more expertise than this. I mean, you just paint whatever the heck you want. Weeks go by and he finishes the art and he says, why don't you come take a look? And he's painted the wedding of Cana at Galilee. And there at the center of the table is Jesus. And and at his, right and his le- at his right are the bride and the groom. I don't know how Jesus gets in the center at somebody else's wedding, but that's all right. And, and, and on his left are some disciples, and he's offering them some wine. And there's this people gra- grouped around him that want to look, but the problem is the painting in your mind is too small. This painting is 20 feet tall by 30 feet wide. And if you look, there's Jesus in the very center of the painting, and he's turned the water into wine, but people from the street are trying to get into the wedding. And they're climbing through windows and up pillars, maybe just to get a glimpse 
maybe just a taste of this new wine that Jesus has offered. And you look close at this painting and they're not all the same people. They're wearing turbans and they have dark skin and almond eyes and light hair and, and, and blue eyes. And it's as if the whole world has heard of this new wine that Jesus offers that satisfies our deepest longing. And they have to at least look at the one who did it. Maybe they can't taste the wine, they can't even get to the table, but maybe just a glimpse of him, a glimpse of him will remind me that my emptiness is known by him. That every square inch of that void in me is marked and measured by the Lord who fills the universe, Paul says, with himself. Maybe just a glimpse, maybe just a look, maybe a taste, that we might know that he fills the empty things. Let's pray. Jesus, you have marked and measured our emptiness. You know our deepest longings, but we also know that we are restless and empty until we find our rest in you. And so we pray for just a taste of who you are. We pray for just a taste of your fullness that we might find our emptiness filled. We pray in Christ's name, amen.